Well, I, I uh, want to change gears just a little bit by asking you a question. When you think of angels, angels, what comes to mind? Now, I know if you're a grandparent here, maybe it's your little grandchild who, who at times can be cute, fat little cherubs, and at other times you think, wasn't Satan a fallen angel? <laughs> That's a s- special little sin nature in that one. <laughs> What comes to mind when you think of angels? Maybe Cupid's arrows, maybe Satan's fiery darts, maybe wings and white robes, maybe flaming swords and chariots, maybe red hair and an Irish accent, maybe singing and praising, maybe playing baseball in the outfield. What comes to mind? You see, we are, we are all over the place when it comes to angels. Teaching about angels has varied through church history from reverential awe to benign neglect, from they're real and should be feared, even worshiped, that's wrong to they are not real, the stuff of ancient myth, that is also wrong. It is not uncommon to think of angels a little more during the Christmas season from which we just uh, came. After all, they appear on Christmas cards and nativity sets and Christmas trees. We've had one as a topper on our tree for years, complete with wings. What comes to mind when you think of angels? Quoted him last week, I'm going to do so again this week. In his introduction to the screw tape letters, author C.S. Lewis writes, Fra Angelico's angels carry in their face and gesture the peace and authority of heaven. Later come the chubby, infantile nudes of Raphael. Finally, the soft, slim, girlish, and consolatory uh, um, uh, angels of 19th century art, shaped, shaped so feminine that they avoid being voluptuous only by their total insipidity, their plainness. They are a pernicious symbol. I don't think he likes those angels. Um, in, in Scripture, the visitation of an angel is always alarming. It has to begin by saying, fear not. The Victorian angel looks as if it were going to say, they're there. When you think of angels, what comes to mind? What do you see? They are mentioned about 100 times in the Old Testament, over 160 in the New Angelic beings can appear as six-winged seraphim, the word means burning ones, surrounding the throne of God. With one pair of wings, they cover their faces. With another, they cover their feet. And with another, they fly. And they cease not day and night to proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Which means since we've been in here, They've been saying it. They cease not. How many times have they said it? Holy, 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 and it never grows old. It's no wonder Isaiah was terrified and needed one of those to angelic beings to come and touch his filthy lips with a burning coal. They can appear as a vast multitude, and then numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. I did the math for you. That's 100 million, by the way. Uh, Much of the time, they are invisible, as was one to Balaam, but not to his donkey. At that time, the angel had a sword drawn, Uh, or or, or invisible to uh, Elisha's servant, but not to Elisha. At that time, they appeared as fiery um, chariots surrounding 
them in the hills. They can appear ascending and descending a ladder to heaven. They can appear in a lion's den, shutting the mouths of the lions. You see, all of those favorite stories that we love, many times angels are, are, are present. They can appear as men, rescuing Lot and his family from Sodom. They can go before the Israelites in their conquest of Canaan. And there's a time that that an angel uh, appeared to Mary. We know his name. It's Gabriel to tell her that she would be pregnant with, well, the Son of God. Or to Joseph, we assume it was the same angel Gabriel to tell him that Mary was indeed pregnant <laughs> by the Holy Spirit. Uh, oh, there's also the archangel Michael who, who, who threw Satan and his angels out of heaven and then later fought with Satan over the body of Moses, guess who won? They, they, they can appear with glorious light as when they announce the resurrection to the women in Matthew 28. They can, they can show up when God's people need help. Don't miss that, when God's people need help, as when one rescued Peter from prison or when they slew 185,000 Assyrians besieging Jerusalem. Man, they're awesome. They, they, they are amazing. Incredible. Make no mistake about it. I mean, read through the book of, of Revelation and see what happens when, when, when one blows a trumpet or, or pours, out a, pours out a bowl of, of, of God's judgment or swings a blade. And there is coming a day when at the trumpet of God, they will return with the Son of God and gather God's elect from the four corners of the earth and pour out God's judgment on those who refuse to believe. They're awesome. Pastor Kent Hughes suggests that if you summarize the specific functions of angels from Scripture, not from the little statues, you come up with the following four duties. First, angels continually worship and praise the God they serve. Holy, holy, holy. Second, angels communicate God's message to humankind. And in fact, that's what the word angel, angelos, means. It means messenger. It's the third, angels minister to believers. Don't miss that to you. I don't have time to list all the ways which they do so, but there are many, such as encamping around those who fear God and keeping you from dashing your foot against a stone. And then fourth, angels will be God's agents in the final earthly judgment and the second coming of Jesus Christ. I mean, they are incredible. They are amazing. They are awesome. But they are, must not be confused with the Son of God. In fact, with Him, there is no comparison. Over the last couple of weeks in our brand new study of the book of Hebrews, we have seen that God spoke His Old Testament revelation through His prophets. In fact, there are some verses which indicate that that revelation through the prophets was mediated through angels, Acts chapter 7, for example. By New Testament times, it was clearly understood that God used angels to, to give the law, that, that is, the, the Old Covenant. But, but, but we remember that the author of Hebrews' purpose was to prove that the New Covenant, which Jesus brought, Jesus mediated, was better, it was greater, grander than the Old Covenant. In fact, all of the Old Covenant points to Jesus. And, and so, he, he began his book in, in, in the first four verses, remember one sentence in the Greek, exalting the, the Son of God to the highest degree, through whom God has spoken, revealing Himself most, most clearly, most 
finally, most fully, through the new covenant as found in the New Testament. And so, if the old covenant was mediated through angels, the author begins by proving that Jesus, who mediated the new covenant, was vastly, and indeed I will say infinitely, superior to angels. That's his point. Now, before we go any further, I want to remind you of the author's purpose. I will do so regularly. His reader, likely a small group of Jewish Christians, were struggling in their new faith. Some had become apathetic and were in danger of drifting away. Others had faced, well, some severe opposition, persecution, and and were in danger of falling away. Some had considered quitting. Others already had. So, so he writes to both warn and encourage them. His warnings, as we saw last week, are rather severe. His encouragements, though, are centered on the truth that through the gospel, we have God's final, full, and complete revelation. We have been gloriously saved through the new covenant in the Son of God and His work on the cross. And He is now, don't miss this, this is central to the teaching of Hebrews. He is now, right now, in the midst of the struggles of life that you are facing He's your great high priest. So don't drift. Don't fall away. Why would you you quit? Do do you know what you have? That's his point. This brings us to our text this morning, Hebrews 1, 5, verse 5, all the way to the end of the chapter. Yes, we will actually finish chapter 1 today. Three sermons. This is unprecedented. So begin in verse 4, the end of that long sentence in which the author has exalted Christ. Jesus has made purification for our sins, sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 4, having become as much better than the angels. That's kind of a right term. What? Well, it's because it was thought that the angels mediated the old covenant, and his whole purpose is going to prove that the new covenant is better, grander, having become as much better than the angels, the mediators of the old covenant, as he has inherited a much more excellent name than they. For, let's prove it. To which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels Winds and his ministers a flame of fire, but of the Son, he says, This is God, the Father, speaking of the Son to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter of the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness or wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And God's still still speaking to the Son, you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they, that is the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit 
salvation. This is an incredible text. Listen, you must add Hebrews chapter 1 to your arsenal of biblical proof that Jesus is none other than the Son of God and, in fact, God himself. Nowhere is it stated more clearly than Hebrews chapter 1. Last week, I noted the author made seven statements about Jesus in verses 2 and 3, summing up his argument in verse 4, because of these truths, Jesus has become much better than the angels, having inherited a a more excellent name than they. Now, Now, remember, that doesn't mean that Jesus already and always has not had a better name than the angels or didn't always and already have a more excellent name. He has. His point is that through his work on the cross, which culminated in his exaltation at the Father's right hand, he proves he is who he has always been. He declares it to the universe. Now, the the author now goes on to quote seven Old Testament passages which prove the point of verses two to four. Five from the Psalms, one from the Torah, that is the book of Deuteronomy, and one from what we call Old Testament history, but they, the Jewish people, called the former prophets as found in 2 Samuel, for example. Our outline will go around these Old Testament quotations, but some of them go together, so we're only going to have five points. First, they're wonderful points. Jesus is son, angels are not. <laughs> Jesus is worshipped, angels are worshippers. Jesus is sovereign, angels are serving God. Jesus is eternal creator and therefore implied angels are created. And Jesus is seated ruler. Angels are ministering servants. There's obviously much overlap here, but let's look at each of these. As we do, I want you to understand the purpose. You are supposed to be impressed with Jesus. Angels, well, they're amazing. They're mighty. They're awesome. They're incredible. But they are nothing compared to God's Son, beginning with Jesus' Son. Angels aren't. Verse 5. Here the author quotes two Old Testament passages, one from Psalm, one from 2 Samuel. Both were seen as messianic texts. That, That means uh, they are verses that ultimately refer to the Messiah to come. I, I say ultimately because there was an immediate fulfillment, but it was not full fulfillment. That full fulfillment was reserved for the Messiah, for Jesus. Notice, he writes, to which of the angels did he, that is God, ever say? And, and then we get to verse 13, and he says it again. To which of the angels... Has he ever said? That's called an inclusio, which serves as bookends to, to, to pr- present a complete package to us. But the implied answer is, in both of those questions, is obviously uh, none. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, none. To which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? None. Uh, true. In Job 1, the angels are together called the sons of God. But this speaks of their special relationship to God as his servants. We'll find that even kings are called sons of God and uh, a special relationship with him, serving his um, purposes. But to which, that's singular, by the way, to which of the angels, which one of them did God ever say, you alone are my son? None. Only one 
deserves that title. And remember, God said those very words to Jesus from heaven on two different occasions for all present to hear. We saw them in our study of the Gospel of Mark. At his baptism in Mark chapter 1, you are my beloved son. And you, I'm well pleased. And again, at the transfiguration in Mark 9, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. There's only one. God says to the son, you and you alone are my son. Again, this comes right out of Psalm chapter 2, which most agree is a coronation psalm and said to David and his descendants at their respective coronations. But even the Old Testament rabbis, scholars, knew that well, there was something special about this declaration. That they understood that its ultimate fulfillment would come in some future messianic king. And this author and other New Testament authors make it clear this psalm was fulfilled in Jesus. In fact, Paul quotes it in, in Acts chapter 13 with clear application to Jesus when God raised him from the dead. Look at it. And, and we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised, Je- raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It's talking about the, the glorious resurrection uh, of Christ. Now, now, now what does the line mean today I've begotten you? It's a little confusing. Hasn't Jesus forever been the only begotten son of God? Yes. But again, the context is, by his finished work on the cross and his exaltation at the Father's right hand, he was declared to be, for all to see, the Father's only begotten Son, proven clearly by his finished work on the cross. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 1, who, that is Jesus, was declared the Son of God was declared. Wasn't he always the Son of God? Yes, yes, he was always the Son of God. But he was declared for everyone to see the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness. Who is that? Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is incredible. The, the, the author goes on to quote 2 Samuel 7. I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. Again, a clearly messianic text. The context of the chapter is God speaking through the prophet Nathan to King David. You see, David wanted to build God a house, a temple. And God said, no, you're a man of blood. You're not going to do that. But your son will do it, and I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Well, the penultimate fulfillment, the close fulfillment, if you will, well, it was in Solomon. Solomon did build a temple for God. But the ultimate fulfillment was found in the Messiah who would sit on David's throne forever. This is the promise, you see, of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Sit there forever. Obviously, Solomon did not do that, nor did any of the kings to come. That is until King Jesus. Listen to what the angel, that is the messenger, Gabriel, said to Mary in Luke chapter 1. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Do you, you see this is a clear fulfillment of those promises made long ago And the author of Hebrews wants us to understand Jesus is that guy. 
He's the very son of the most high God. So, don't miss it. Jesus alone is the son of God, a title that was given to no one else to include any angel. No comparison. In fact, second point, Jesus is worshiped. The angels are worshipers. I love this one. And when he, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. It's a quote from Psalm 97, or more likely from Deuteronomy chapter 32. By the way, notice how the author of Hebrews quotes Old Testament scripture. He says it over and over. He says, God says. When he's... When he quotes the Bible, he says, God says. You see, the point for him, when the Scripture speaks, God speaks. We believe the same thing because we believe in the, in the inspiration and inerrancy and authority of Scripture. It is, after all, God's Word. And so when we quote it, we can say, you can say if you want to, Psalm 13 says, or you can say God says because He does. So when God brings His firstborn to the world. That's a little confusing. How is Jesus firstborn? Does this, does this mean that there are others? Or does this mean that he was, when he was born, he came into existence, and until then, he did not exist? That there was, to quote a fourth century heretic named Arius, there was a time when Jesus was not? No. Obviously, Jesus had to pre-exist if he created everything, of which we will be reminded in a moment. And obviously, he pre-existed if God brought him into the world. No, no, no. He is firstborn in a couple of different, very important ways. Firstborn in the Scripture speaks primarily of rank, not of chronology, of rank. Jesus is of highest rank because he is God's firstborn son. But he is second also first among many. What does that mean? Does he have other sons? And daughters, sort of, yeah. He was first born to be raised from the dead. And there will be many others. Because he was raised first, so also will we be raised. With the author's clear love of the book of Psalms, this may be an allusion to Psalm 89, speaking again of David, but with ultimate fulfillment in the Messiah, I shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So, God brings his firstborn into the world. He does so at his incarnation, through his work on the cross, leading up to his subsequent exaltation. All of that is likely in mind. And he says, let all God's angels worship him. I cannot overstate how hugely significant this is. Simple question for you, who deserves worship? You may answer, who deserves worship? God. The, the scripture is clear. Only God deserves worship, not created beings. In fact, there were times when people were so overcome with dread and fear at the magnificent appearance of angels that they would fall in worship. And the angel would be very quick to say, no, 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 don't do that. Don't worship me. Worship God. As, as when the angel had given the apostle John the, the book of Revelation, John was so overcome. And we read these words in, in Revelation chapter 19. Then I fell at his, the angel's feet, 
to worship him. But he said to me, no, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and, and your brother who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. We remember, of course, the Ten Commandments, which make clear that God alone is to be worshiped. We, we remember when Satan, the highest of the fallen angels, tempted Jesus to, and said, I will give you all of the kingdoms of, those, of this world if you will fall down and worship me, to which Jesus responded, go, Satan, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The point is very clear. It's a simple syllogism. Premise A, only God is worshiped. Premise B, Jesus is worshiped by God, therefore Jesus is God and superior, infinitely so, to the angels. In, in fact, they worship him. Look at Revelation chapter 5. I cannot wait to be part of this throng. Then I looked, I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures, four living creatures, six wings, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads and myriads, and that's 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands and thousands, and with a loud voice saying, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven, every created thing, angels, which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen in between saying holy, holy, holy. And all of the elders fell down and worshiped. Hallelujah. We understand that's why we worship Jesus. Do you understand that a lot of the, 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 the worship songs that we sing have Jesus' name in it? That's because all creation worships him. Third, Jesus is sovereign God. Angels are God's, I mean, Jesus is sovereign God while angels are simply God's servant, verses seven to nine. Two Psalms quoted here, Psalm 104, Psalm 45. First, the author suggests the angels are ministers, simply ministers or servants. The angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? The idea is that, that angels, like winds and fire, simply serve God wherever he sends them. But, this is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. But of the Son... God says, quoting Psalm 45, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, this can be confusing. In Psalm 45, the, the writer is speaking to the king on his throne. A bit challenging that he calls the king God. But the point there was as king, he was acting as God's vice, not co, vice regent. So in Oriental custom, even Jewish custom, this was not unusual. But again, the, one, the king sitting on the throne was not God. There was obviously a more complete fulfillment of Psalm 45, fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. And God the Father says to God the Son, don't miss it. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Don't miss that God calls Jesus God. the author's point. Angels are simply servants. The Son is sovereign God. He goes on to quote the next few lines of the psalm, applying them to Jesus, and the righteous scepter is a scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. 
Jesus is extolled um, as the sovereign king whose kingdom is perfectly founded on righteousness and all the while hating wickedness. Now, let me ask you a question. What king of Israel ever did that perfectly? David? Not so much. Solomon? Nope. Nor did any of the ones who followed them. Ultimately, this is fulfilled in Jesus. Therefore, God, your God, that is, God the Father, Father God of the Son, has anointed the Son with the oil of gladness, intriguingly, above your companions. Who are the companions? Angels? No, not likely. His subjects, it is likely us. His subjects, those within his kingdom, who he is not ashamed to call brothers. Chapter 2. Do, 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 you, do you see what he just said about you? It's possible that he just keeps on quoting. He started with Psalm 45, and he just kept on going. Or, unlikely, it's more likely that this sovereign God who sits at the right hand of the Father on high looks at you and calls you his companions. Oh, my. I, I don't get that, do you? And in chapter 2, he will call you brothers and sisters. Fourth, the Son is eternal creator while the angels implied are those created, verses 10 to 12. God is still speaking. He says to the Son, you, Lord, stop right there. It's a quote of Psalm 102, verses, specifically verses 25 to 27. There the psalmist is lament, the, the writer is lamenting his personal affliction and his most assured brevity, the brevity of life. I'm just a, I, 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 life's almost over. I'm just a vapor. I'm just some grass that appears for then withers. But he finds comfort in the constant, eternal, never-changing care of God. In verse 24 of that psalm, the, the addressee is clearly identified as God, as God. The psalmist addressing God says, Oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generation. Uh, of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. We cannot but help but think of, uh, of the very first verse of the Bible. We're supposed to, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, okay, we get that. You, God, you laid the foundations of the earth. That's what Genesis 1, that's what Psalm says. But here, the author of Hebrews applies that psalm, are you ready, to Jesus. You can say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Or if you'd like, you could say, in the beginning, Jesus created the heavens and the earth. This is unbelievable. Jesus, you laid the foundation of the earth. Jesus, the heavens are the work of your hands. And the author declares the eternal deity of the Son. They're going to perish, but, but you will remain. They will all become old like a garment like a mantle or a coat that you, you roll up in dirty clothes and throw them in the corner of your room. Uh, like a garment, they will also be changed. Well, we understand this. Not only does science tell us that the universe is ever expanding, we also understand that it is decaying. It is growing old. It is wearing out. But you, God the Son, 
are consistently, eternally, constantly the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13. While the universe will one day be folded up and discarded, don't let that bother you because that necessitates the need of a new heaven and a new earth. Universe folded and discarded, you, Son of God, will never come to an end. You are gloriously eternal. Angels obviously are not since they're created by Him. Bringing us to our last point, Jesus is seated, sovereign ruler, and angels are busy serving us. Look again at verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said? And he quotes Psalm 110. He already referenced it back in verse 3. Now he quotes it. I told you last week that Psalm 110 is the most quoted passage in the New Testament. Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is clearly another messianic psalm waiting for its ultimate fulfillment in the Messiah King. God said to his son, there's only one Sit at my right hand, the place of highest honor and authority, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This was an ancient practice. When an enemy was defeated, he would be forced to to bow before the victor king, kiss his feet, and the victor would then place his foot on the conquered king's neck as a symbol of victory and sovereignty. There is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. See yourself kissing his feet, his foot on your neck. Every knee. Jesus is defeated every foe and has sat down. Angels are not seated at God's right hand. Whenever we see them, they're fluttering about, praising, flying, standing about the throne of God, seeking to serve Him. And so He sends them, the Son is seated, they're sent to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. That is, those who will be saved. Don't miss it, you and me. My brothers and sisters, in the midst of challenges of life, difficulties. We have been, we are, and we will be served by angels as we worship the sovereign seated Son. So, okay, great. Got a few good notes here. That's good. I didn't even know if you knew the Old Testament, Scott. How does this encourage us as believers who are facing challenges, who have found the Christian life most difficult? How does this encourage us to persevere? Consider some personal applications of each of these five points as I close. First, if Jesus alone is the Son of God, not not even angels who mediated the old covenant... And, 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 and Jesus alone has the name Son. No one else. To whom else will we turn? Having completed his work of purification, he and being, had been exalted to the highest degree, receiving a name that is above every name, the very Son of God, Jesus. No one else has that name. The disciples had it right. To whom else can we turn? Jesus, you alone have the words of life. It's difficult thinking about 
Who are you going to go to? There's only one son. If Jesus alone is worshipped and not strong, mighty, glorious, amazing, mighty angels. If Jesus alone is worshipped, why would we quit Christianity? We know and serve and worship the most glorious of beings, the very Son of God. Will you turn to the worship of angels as those in Colossae were doing? Worship angels who are serving God? Will you turn to a worship of false deities who, when Jesus alone is the Son of God and alone deserves worship? Will you quit religion altogether when you are when you were created to worship the true and the living God through His Son, and by doing so find greatest joy and fulfillment and meaning through such worship. Will Will you quit that? If Jesus alone is sovereign, Jesus alone, will you declare your allegiance to another? Will you make another king when Jesus alone, as declared by God Himself, sits at God's right hand on a righteous throne, righteous scepter, and who one day will establish a righteous kingdom on earth. I know, brothers and sisters, that it is challenging, but Jesus is ruling right now, and He will one day make all things right. If Jesus alone is creator and alone is eternal unchanging, again, to whom else will you turn? All the other so-called gods will one day be proven false. All angels will join us in worshiping the one living true God. We will gather around His throne with myriads, a myriad, a hundred million angels ascribing worship to the due only to the eternal, unchanging God. My brothers and sisters, this place is history. It's going to be folded up like a piece of dirty laundry and discarded. Do you want your attention here? And last, if Jesus alone is seated at the right hand of God Almighty, God the Father, if all enemies have become His footstool, even the ones with which you struggle right now, right now, don't you want to be on the side of the victor king? By the way, what were the enemies He vanquished? Who became his footstool? All sin, all those in rebellion against him, all evil powers headed by the evil one himself. And finally, in this culture of death, death has been destroyed. Last enemy to be destroyed. I do not know about you, but I want to be found on his side, called his brother, his companion, a co-heir with him, Worshipping Him with the angels forever. Don't you? Stand for prayer. Father, that is a lot of, that's a lot of information. That's, that's a lot of Old Testament quotes. And, and I know that when I was studying it, this, this very week that my mind was swimming and I, I had difficulty grasping. In fact, I know I did not grasp the depth of this truth. But the end of the, our time, you, you are trying to impress upon us that there is one victor king. His name is Jesus. 
He's at your right hand. He's God. There is no other. So in the midst of whatever challenges we are facing, difficulties, help us not to drift. Help us not to fall away. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. He's worth it. In Christ's name, amen.